Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The latest from 7 News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome tonight. Australia hours away from a major vaccination milestone. Living with COVID, your first look at vaccine passports and home quarantine. The truth about kids and COVID, new research and it's good news. And we'll go live to Paris where the 2015 terror trial is right now underway. But first, tonight the New South Wales Crisis Cabinet has signed off on those long-awaited plans for so-called Freedom Day, the plan to ease restrictions for the fully vaccinated. Our reporter Tom Sakers, live from Parliament House in Sydney with more. Tom, good evening to you. So what do we know about this plan? Yeah, good evening, Michael. Well, it all hinges upon New South Wales hitting that 70% vaccination target as forecast in mid-October. But October 18 is the day that, New South, that the New South Wales government signed off on this evening in that emergency crisis cabinet meeting uh, that New South Wales is likely to be set free on that day. It will mean that pubs, clubs, restaurants and bars will reopen, as will services including hairdressers, retail and public ticketed events. We have been assured that it will all be done in a COVID-safe way, which means that masks, masks uh, capacity limits and social distancing will still be in full force. But, uh, of course, also QR code check-ins will, will still have to be used by businesses and by people checking in and out of uh, venues and businesses alike. But uh, So that will all happen on October 18, we are told at the moment. Um, at this stage, as soon as Saturday, though, some, of re some regional councils in New South Wales could have some of their restrictions wound back uh, because there is no COVID in many of these places. Uh, for now, though, we do very much look forward to October 18 yeah. uh, as the day as we will likely to be uh, likely to know as Freedom Day. And this roadmap that we've heard so much about is likely to be released in much more detail tomorrow, Michael. All right, lots of more detail tomorrow and some probably good news for the mid and north coast, I think, too, which is going to get some quicker restrictions lifted. Tom, the vaccine rate is rising. The state's premier has previewed home quarantine for international arrivals into New South Wales. What does that look like? Have a listen to this. If they've been vaccinated with a credible vaccine, which is highly, has high efficacy, uh, and they can be monitored whilst they're at home, there's opportunities for us to move to that model between 70 and 80 per cent double dose. All right, big news for a lot of Australians still trying to get back to Australia as well. What's it, what's it going to look like, Tom? Yeah, well, this also uh, hinges upon New South Wales hitting that 70% vaccination target in mid-October. But the details on this plan are not yet very thorough from the Premier. She did mention today, though, that uh, returning uh, travellers from overseas coming back into New South Wales could uh, be able to quarantine at home for as little as seven days. And, of course, that would have to be bookended by negative test results. She also indicated that uh, she'd be interested in pursuing what South 
South Australia are currently trialling with a facial recognition and geolocation app which determines whether you are in fact quarantining at home. Yeah. Uh, but of course... Uh, yeah, the Premier conceding, obviously, that some people will have to give up many of their privacies, but also that New South Wales will be able to welcome home much more uh, returning travellers and reunite them with family and friends, Michael. All right, that's important to look forward to for many people. Tom Saker in Sydney, thanks for that. Regional Victoria has been given the green light to open up from midnight tomorrow, but the Premier, Daniel Andrews, still had some strong words of warning. It's not a snapback, it's not Freedom Day, it's not... 100% of capacity down at the pub, it can't be. If it is, then we will simply see numbers spread. Why would you take that risk? If you don't have good reason, lawful reason to go to regional Victoria, then please do not go to regional Victoria. Wise words. Estelle Grippings, our reporter live at police headquarters tonight. Estelle, hello to you. Some very welcome news tonight, but police are warning they will be vigilant. They are, Michael, and that's despite not having any static sites like last year. They're going to have about 200 police officers for Operation Guardian, and that means they will be out in force across regional areas, making sure that Melburnians don't leave Melbourne unless they have a valid permit. They'll mostly be patrolling seven main roads as well as country back roads, using things like booze buses and number plate, technician, number plate recognition technology. This comes as some restrictions are lifted for regional Victoria. From midnight tomorrow in all regions except Greater Shepparton, the stay-at-home rules will fall away. Pubs, cafes, restaurants and hairdressers will reopen with strict density limits. Retail's back with the one person per four square metre rule. And schools will reopen for prep grade one, grade two and students completing year 12 subjects. And Michael, it's hoped that Shepparton will be able to join those other regional areas. There was some good news today. No new cases over the last 24 hours. That's so important there. They've been doing it very, very tough in Shepparton. Now, still huge fines and chaotic scenes at that synagogue that illegally celebrated Jewish New Year. Certainly, Michael, and police have described that behaviour as appalling. There were worshippers there for around 14 hours at the Ripponlee prayer room. They were gathering despite restrictions, and police are very disappointed with this behaviour indeed. There were violent scenes outside the prayer rooms when those worshippers emerged. In fact, there was a TV news cameraman who received a concussion and actually had to go to hospital. Now, there have been six people who have received fines so far, but it's believed up to a dozen people actually escaped arrest by climbing onto neighbouring roofs. Police say they're going to catch up with everyone who was there and they say they plan to find every adult who is in attendance. Michael? All right, it's still grouping in Melbourne. Thank you. Emails have exposed what really went on in controversial discussions between Pfizer executives and the health department last year. Labor made the freedom of information request for those emails. Have a listen to their take on it reveal and confirm the depth of Scott Morrison's failure to secure an early supply deal with Pfizer. These papers, released under FOI, confirm that back in June 2020, Pfizer initiated contact with the government, not the other way round. All right, Rob Scott's in our Canberra Bureau with more on this story. Rob, good evening. What do we know? Good evening, Michael. Well, Labor says these emails prove that we were never at the front of the queue, as Scott Morrison has been claiming, and that the government failed to take up Pfizer's offers to lock in a deal for an early supply of vaccines. 
Labor says the paper trail shows the pharmaceutical giant was offering Health Minister Greg Hunt high-level meetings with members of its global leadership team back in June and, and July last year that he turned it down. Now, that came after a letter to his department from Pfizer saying it could supply millions of doses of its vaccine by the end of 2020 and also warned that negotiations with the UK and US were progressing quickly. Those countries, they all signed deals within days, but our government didn't clinch its deal until November, some five months later. The government insists it entered into an agreement as soon as it could that the millions of doses Pfizer was referring to was its global production capability and that there were no early doses available to Australia. Take a listen. The Labor Party only got access to a certain amount of the emails and there is a lot more to this story uh, than what the Labor Party are putting out. This is a selective use of emails. It doesn't tell the full story. All right, well, Rob, that's in the past. Let's look to the future here. The government's announced the introduction of Australia's vaccine passport. So when is that going to be rolled out? Well, next month is the plan, Michael. The finer details are still being worked out. But basically, a person's vaccination status will be linked to their regular passport, making entry and exit from Australia pretty easy. That information will also be available through an app with a QR code that can be used while overseas to prove you've been immunised. Despite those certificates rolling out next month, that doesn't mean we'll be able to jet off abroad straight away. That still hinges on reaching those 80% vaccination targets. But the government says it does pave the way for more overseas holidays and for the return of international students and eventually tourists. Now, it's hoped a similar system will help bring down internal borders, although not all leaders are convinced. To suggest that vaccine passports are going to be this magic ticket to freedom, that they are very difficult to verify, easily uh, corrupted and don't necessarily deliver uh, any of the great either public health or vaccination encouragement benefits uh, that some might be claiming. Now, he he could be right, Michael, but at least we seem to be heading in the right direction. Yep, that is true. All right, Rob Scott in Canberra, thank you. A new report has provided much-needed insight into how the Delta variant is affecting children. The six-week study looked at 51 educational settings in New South Wales and 59 individuals who attended those schools while infectious. Co-author of that report, Professor Christine McCartney from the National Centre for Immunisation and Research and the University of Sydney, joins me now for more. Professor, thanks for joining us. Now, this is what a lot of parents have been wanting to hear. Can children catch Delta, but they don't seem to be too seriously affected by it? Is that right? That's right. So kids can catch COVID. Anyone of any age can. And the Delta variant is more infectious. So on the one hand, our work, which is ongoing, Michael, um, showed that, you know, it's five times more likely that you catch COVID in the household where most cases occur and also at schools and childcare. But overall, the rate was still very low amongst children. And, for example, in the 51 schools where there was a case of COVID, uh, you know, only 19 of those, did anybody get a secondary case? 32, there were no cases at all. All right. Well, that's important, particularly as schools are about to go back. But what does it compare, Professor, to what we knew about children who caught the virus in the first wave? Yeah, that's the really interesting part of this. We're still seeing that children you know, primarily have mild disease or sometimes no symptoms at all. Now, some children will be hospitalised, around 2%, um, and and we know that that rate could be higher in children with underlying medical conditions. So uh, a big shout-out here to say that, you know, we know also children now from the age of 12 and above will be eligible for vaccines, so very important for all of those 12 and above 
But the most important thing we can do to prevent COVID and keep our children safe across the board is, of course, to be vaccinated as adults caring for them. Yeah. So the implications of the research, Professor, what might they have on how children can return to schools, as I mentioned, in the coming months? Yeah, I think that's so important. And we know that children and families have been suffering through this pandemic. You know, we're, we're seeing children, you know, have loss of their education and um, all the social and, and well-being um, things that education provides. So as we, you know, um, see more and more adults vaccinated, and I can't stress how important it is for parents, teachers, everyone involved in the education system and, and families and everyone around kids to be vaccinated, that's going to mean that the spread um, to children is less likely. And knowing that they have milder disease, even for those under 12 who can't yet get vaccinated themselves, um, I hope does give some parents yeah. some reassurance, Michael. I think they're seeking that reassurance as well. Uh, Professor, mm -hmm. you say the research is ongoing. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. But if you're a parent sitting here now, when you hear all the headlines, as we've been you know, hearing in those daily briefings every day, more children infected. Delta seems to be getting into the, the adolescent population uh, much more pro progressively and faster. Um, does, does that mean that children are more, more vulnerable to Delta, particularly in school settings, or, uh, or, or not? Is it just because they're unvaccinated? Look, I think, I think we'll see kids catch COVID. And, and I don't think we should shy away from that fact, but I think most of them won't get very sick. And, of course... Um, the, the hard part, that some of the children we have in hospital, Michael, they're, they're in hospital because their parents are ill. They can't care for them. They've got COVID as well. So, again, the best thing you can do for your whole family is to be vaccinated. And mostly those younger children will do okay with COVID. But if, if, if they were to need hospital care, of course, you know, we have the hospitals hospitals there. So, you know, parents hear a lot of worrying information, but I think we've got the vaccine for them. We've got the vaccine for their teenagers coming on board now and a plan to get kids back into schools, which is so important. And not, a, not as aggressive in a school setting as perhaps we thought. So that's also good news as well. All right. Look it forward is. to more of your research too. Professor Christine McCartney, thank you for that. Now, checking in on our vaccine numbers, tomorrow is a milestone day. The country will reach 40% of the adult population double vaccinated, halfway to that all-important 80%. In the past day, more than 294,000 people got the jab. 39% of Australians are fully vaccinated. Australia has delivered more than 21.5 million doses. In 55 days, that's on the 2nd of November, 70% of the population will be double dosed. In 73 days, the 20th of November... 80% of Australians will be fully vaccinated. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Someone somewhere tonight has missed calls and texts from the Queensland Health Minister, actually meant for the Federal Defence Minister. Yvette Darth said she repeatedly tried to contact Peter Dutton to talk about claims of quarantine delays for troops returning from Afghanistan, but never heard back. Turns out it was the wrong number. They've since spoken and both want to, quote, move on from the blunder. One of the last of Sydney's notorious 1980s gangland figures has died. Arthur Nettie Smith 
died having suffered Parkinson's disease in a prison hospital aged 76 after almost 40 years behind bars. The infamous hard man eventually turned whistleblower testifying against former corrupt cop and friend Roger Rogerson. Smith claimed police gave him a green light to commit crimes. The West Australian Parliamentary Inquiry has begun into a string of alleged sexual assaults on mine sites run by BHP and Fortescue Metals. The inquiry is looking at the systems in place to protect workers and report harassment at remote sites. Today, WA police issued a warning to fly in, fly out workers, commit a sex crime and you will face justice. Well, a sporting tradition dating back 114 years is over tonight. The NRL Grand Final officially given a new home in Brisbane. Our reporter Ned Balm is live at Suncorp tonight. Ed, good evening. Ned, rather, good evening to you. What's the big plan? Well, Michael, the big plan is that in less than a month's time on Sunday, October 3, more than 50,000 people will pack this iconic stadium in a game many in Queensland have been waiting for for a very long time. Today's announcement, basically the worst kept secret in sport, one that the basically since the New South Wales cluster exploded, that Queensland would eventually get the NRL grand final. Now, of course, the NRL relocated all its teams up here in July, and we've also hosted nearly half the games of the entire season, as well as those three state of origin games. So it makes perfect sense that the decider would be here. Here's the NRL's head of football, Graeme Annesley, and here's what he had to say earlier today. I think it's fair to say that without uh, Queensland this year, the continuation of rugby league in Australia would just not have been possible. Uh, who would have thought when we kicked off at the start of the year that we would be relocating the whole competition to Queensland uh, just so that we could get through the season? Now, the move itself will actually cost the state government $4.6 million, which is a bit of a head-scratcher on the surface, given how much effort they've done to save the competition. But uh, as, as we've seen, there's obviously a lot of interest in the game, and unfortunately there weren't really any many other viable options for the league. So much like the Olympics, this feels like it's been a done deal for some time, but still nevertheless very exciting for the league. As for the finals, they kick off this weekend, and they'll be heading to the regions. We'll have a game on the Sunshine Coast, two in Townsville and one in Rockhampton. Interestingly enough, that game in Rockhampton will also have a pop-up vaccination clinic so you can get your jab and then also check out the game. After that, two semi-finals in Mackay before we return to Suncorp Stadium for the prelims and then the big game on October 3. So hopefully COVID can stay away until then and we'll have a packed house here at Suncorp on grand final night. Yeah, fingers crossed. Good to see it travelling in the regions too. I think it's one of the, you know, the, one of the good upsides of this whole affair. Good on you, Ned. Ned Varm in Brisbane, thank you. At least 41 prisoners have died and 80 more injured after a fire ripped through an overcrowded Indonesian prison. Most of the victims were drug convicts, including two men from South, um, South Africa and Portugal. It's thought the fire started after a short circuit in one of the cells. British MPs are under fire tonight over the great big free trade deal with Australia. They're accused of bowing to pressure from Australia to remove specific commitments to the Paris Climate Agreement from the deal. Though Paris is mentioned, language around the climate targets was reportedly changed to remove specific temperature goals for Australia to hit. One of the largest criminal trials in French history is right now underway in Paris. 20 men are accused of planning and carrying out terrorist attacks that killed 130 people. That was in 2015. Uh, Europe Bureau Chief Hugh Whitfield's live in London for us tonight. Hugh, 
Good evening to you from here. Now, this is a trial six years in the making. What information is the court hoping to uncover in the next nine months? Well, Michael, ultimately it needs to determine the guilt of these 20 men accused, most of them of being involved in the plotting and the coordination of these attacks back in November 2015. Some of the accused men are believed to have been killed fighting with Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, and only one is accused of murder, Salah Abdesalam, alleged to be the only surviving terrorist from that night in Paris. His suicide belt apparently didn't go off and he reportedly fled to Belgium where he was later arrested. Survivors say they are keen in particular to hear from him to try and understand why he carried out uh, allegedly these attacks, although the prospects of actually hearing his side of the story are pretty slim considering that so far throughout his time in custody he has failed to cooperate with detectives either in France or Belgium. This trial is taking place in a huge purpose-built courtroom that's been built in central Paris. Uh, it is very secure. It is big as well to house the 300 lawyers for the 1,800 victims, mainly families of those who died and survivors. It's going to take some time too. Nine months set down for this trial, expecting that uh, Abdusalam would be questioned in the new year. And towards the end of this year, the witnesses will be heard. And one of those witnesses will be the French president at the time, Francois Hollande. He's been on Paris radio just in the last couple of hours saying he'll answer any questions, including, interestingly, France's involvement in the fight against Islamic State in Iraq and Syria as to whether that had any bearing on why these attacks were carried out in the name of Islamic State. Hugh, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I think the pandemic has sidetracked all of us and you forget about the atrocities that were happening beforehand. I had forgotten the terrible death toll out of this. You were there the night of the attack at the Bataclan Theatre. What do you remember? Well, yeah, it was part of an extraordinary wave of terror across Europe. I think I've been in London for more than seven years. I've covered, I think, 24 terror attacks across this yeah. continent and North Africa. And this was kind of the beginning of that terrible wave. Um, I happened to be in Paris um, by chance because I was there to celebrate a friend's birthday and I was having dinner on the left bank. And I just remember this extraordinary cacophony of sirens and it, it was overwhelming and yeah. I knew that something was up. And within minutes, my phone went off with the alert saying that there was reported shootings in central Paris. Um, my phone was almost dead, remarkably, and I went straight back to my hotel where people were kind of freaking out, trying to stay inside. I had friends on the other bank who were trying to hunker down in their hotel room as well. And that period after the night of the attacks was pretty wild as well because the thought was that these guys were still on the loose and mm. allegedly Salah Abdeslam was on the loose. He'd headed up to Brussels um, where there were further arrests. Uh, there was a, a, a big shootout in Saint-Denis a couple of days after the attacks in Paris yeah. uh, as they went after the alleged attackers. So it was an extraordinary time and, um, yeah, it's one of those... I mean, it's the, by far the biggest attacks, uh, one of the biggest attacks that we've covered here in Europe. Indeed, all, and one of the biggest trials ahead too, as you said, nine, nine long months there, but uh, quite extraordinary that they've got it to this legal stage now. It's good. All right, Hugh Whitfield, really good to talk to you about that and thanks for sharing those thoughts. If you have Bitcoin, you would have watched on in horror at one point today as the price tumbled and the timing of the fall couldn't have been worse for those in El Salvador. 
Now, this is strange. Have a listen. In a world-first experiment, every citizen has been given a digital wallet, allowing them to legally make transactions with cryptocurrency. Our network finance editor, Jim Acton's here. Break it all down for us. This is a really interesting story. Uh, fair to say that it was a far from smooth start to this rollout. What went wrong? Well, yes, unfortunately uh, for the government of El Salvador, they had issued everybody with a Bitcoin wallet uh, and they'd preloaded that with $30 worth of Bitcoin for people to spend in any shop any retailer had to accept it from today but there were so many technical glitches with this government bitcoin wallet that they had to take it offline within hours of the launch now that coincided with a 17 percent plunge in the price of bitcoin so that 30 dollars worth was suddenly worth a lot less to el salvadorians who couldn't even access right. it apparently it is back online now but they're still working through some of the, the glitches so what does it say about bitcoin is, is, is it this plunge is, is it proof that it's still risky that it's still uncertain or oh, not I suppose so price swings have been a feature of bitcoin and indeed pretty much all cryptocurrency since they first came to our attention. Not just price tumbles, of which there have been some major ones, but also very rapid price upswings. If you're talking about this in US dollars, if you go back around four years, you could buy one Bitcoin for around 2,000 US dollars. By April, you'd be shelling out around 60,000. That dropped all the way down by July to less than 30,000 US dollars. So if you're someone who cannot stomach that kind of volatility, which many people can't, it doesn't fit with their, their savings plans, cryptocurrency might not be for you. All right, so it's a roller coaster. that much we've a established. But the, the, the thing about El Salvador intrigues me, but we'll get into that another time. But people there, are they angry and do they have good reason to be concerned about this, this cryptocurrency experiment? Well, it's a pretty bold experiment. No other country has done it yet. More than a 1,000 El Salvadorians took to the streets yesterday to protest it. It is a poor country, one of the poorest in the region. This obviously cost the government quite a lot of money to do this experiment when the price of Bitcoin fell the government had bought quite a lot, so they lost quite a lot of the value. That doesn't matter so much if the price recovers, but there are also concerns that should all retailers be forced to accept it, it could make life very complicated for them. They could be holding Bitcoins that one day might become a lot less, worth a lot less than they were the day before. Now, what the government says is that uh, El Salvadorians make so many international money transfers and pay hefty right. fees on these yeah. that they think Bitcoin might be a way to circumvent some of okay. these fees. That certainly makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, before you go, a uh, new iPhone yes. on the way. It seems like a long time since we've talked about iPhone releases. They used to be the thing, queues around the block, we won't see the queues anymore. When's the big reveal? You do not have to wait long. Uh, next Tuesday, California time. Mm -hmm. uh, next Wednesday at 3 o'clock Eastern time here in Australia. Uh, if you want to stay up past the latest and uh, see it all live. Right. And that's when our current iPhones glitch and start doing weird things to the makers. Give it a day. <laughs> okay. We'll see. All right, Jim, thanks for that. Thanks, Michael. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Welcome back. Lockdown fatigue is setting in tonight from illegal synagogue and church gatherings to the influencer Nadia Bartel's house party. We're seeing more instances of the rules being broken. Let's go to our panellists tonight. Joining us as always, Dee Madigan, Carolyn Ovington. Great to see you both again. Dee, I'm going to go to you first because I think I know your view on this. Now, millions have been in lockdown for a painfully long time. I was going to say broadly, do people have a right to be over it? But how are you feeling? Are you over it? Look, I, I am over it. But I'm also still doing what needs to be done. So today, for me, it was the Tony Abbott not wearing a mask thing when he was fully dressed. And his excuse was, oh, well, I've been surfing. Now, I run every day, 5Ks. And as soon as that runs over on the walk back, when I'm puffed out, when I'm hot, when I'm sweaty, I wear that mask because that's what you're supposed to do. And when you see people, you know, are supposed to be leaders in the community just ignoring the rules, it makes me really cross. So that really set you off, seeing Tony Abbott it without a mask down in the really beach It really did. It was just... <laughs> Just entitled behaviour. Carolyn, is it time to open up, even if we haven't hit that 70% vax target? Yes, I think most people are pretty much over it. Lockdown fatigue has definitely set in. And the problem is in Sydney, for example, and increasingly in Victoria, you have so many people who are now either double vaccinated or certainly have had one vax. So in New South Wales, we're well over 70% one vax and cl closing in on getting... If all of those people suddenly get their second vaccination in the next few weeks, you're going to have a population of people who are essentially vaccinated way ahead of the US, way ahead of Britain. And we are not in a hermit kingdom. We are in that we can't move anywhere, but we can see what's going on in the rest of the world. I mean, you turn on your computer and you see people at the Venice Film Festival and you see people at the football and you see people at concerts and you see people travelling overseas. There's a fantastic graphic this week about airline traffic around the world. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, like a flight chucker. And there was all these planes over Europe and over America and even over Africa. And in Australia, you know, it's essentially barren. You can't even go from Sydney to Adelaide. It's ridiculous. I w let me ask you this of, of both of you. I wonder whether some of the messaging has gone a bit sideways again. This whole vaccination passport, you're going to be able to travel overseas. I'm just not too sure that's an incentive. I just don't... I think that's probably elite. Isn't it just about reuniting family and friends? Isn't that the goal? It's almost a domestic or local suburb passport that we want, not a big passport to travel travel overseas, it would be nice, it would be a luxury for some. Some might connect with family that way, but isn't it just about reconnecting across very small boundaries, D? Yeah, and this is a case, I think, when the people who are making the news and making the announcement that and that, they don't realise the life they're leading is really, really yeah. different to ordinary people who, as you said, you know, well, for them elitist, going overseas it? once. It's absolutely elitist. And, yeah, for most people, just being able to go... I don't know, on a camping holiday um, up on the central coast is what they want. It, it yeah. isn't to go overseas. So, yeah, sometimes I think they might be pitching their messages a little bit up here. And, Carolyn, why I ask that question is I just... Because we've got to surge to this next... It's taken us seven or so months to get to 40% nationally double-dosed, you know, fully vaccinated. We've got to get to 80% in a much shorter time, about two months. I just wonder whether the incentives and the messaging about that has to change. No, I couldn't disagree more. I don't think it's elitist at all. I think it's OK for us because we're all white, but there's a lot of people in Australia who have another nationality mm. who are, for example, Indian Australian or Chinese Australian or come from the Middle East, and they have an arrangement with their family to go back often. Yeah. 
that's part of the deal. You know, particularly the Chinese and the Indian, Australians are here who say, yes, but mum, I'll come home and I'll bring the grandkids. And I mean, okay, maybe you and I don't have any close family overseas, but there are a lot of Australians who have a parent or two or a child or somebody working in London or somebody working in Singapore that they want to see. Qantas did some analysis on this this week where they said that when the Prime Minister announced that we would be able to go overseas, the searches for flights just surged. Mm. People are really keen to go back to what is a fairly normal life for Australians who are the most travelled people on the planet. No, very good point. I take it as well. Let's have a look at this other story this week that captivated uh, so many people, the incredible case of the lost and found, little AJ Alpha Luck. Now, we're about to mark seven years of a similar case that's yet to be solved. William Tyrrell's disappearance, of course. Uh, Karen, I'll ask you, you've been following this story closer than most and you've been working on a documentary for Channel 7, which has started promoting this week. It seems very, very strong. Do you have reason to believe that one day we will have an answer about William? Yes, and I know that you believe it too. And I know that you are very close to this case as well, Michael, and you're emotionally invested and you know the people that are involved. Um, And you and I have talked about this a lot, how this case is solvable. It has to be, because there can't be a point at which anybody who is involved says, well, we give up. I mean, how do you say that? I mean, people did say to me this week, well, they found AJ after three days, how come they didn't find William? Well, we know why they didn't find yep. William, because he's not lost. Mm. He was taken. Something happened to him. And so the idea that we say about a three-year-old boy who would now be 10, okay, we've given up looking for you, I'm not going to do that, and I don't no. think you are. Either. No, not at all. The spotlight has to remain on William's story for a very long time until the answers are found, and they will be found. Uh, D, you have to feel for William's birth and foster families. And I tell you what, I asked that question in the light of this week. There was just a really ham-fisted uh, report for, you know, the police saying they had a new lead, and then that information was walked back, and I know that caused a lot of uh, hurt and discomfort for the foster family. But D, you have to feel for everyone involved in this. Yeah, and I think the AJ thing would have um, brought a lot of their emotions to the surface as well because it, it was a similar situation. And I remember when I saw that, I thought, oh, my gosh, is this a, a William Tyrrell thing again? What's happening? So, And it must be that every time a child disappears that those emotions, you know, just are, are coming mm. up again and all the police involved in that. And, yeah, and I read that story this week and I, I got excited that there was a new suspect in the William Tyrrell thing and then I just saw them walking it back and you just think, God, what this what this must do to the minds of the people who are close to um, this boy, I, I can't imagine. Oh, it, uh, it's torture and it caused uh, a lot of damage, I understand, within uh, the investigator circles as well, Carolyn. Is that your read on it? Well, I actually think that because I believe the case can be solved, I think it's important that the, the suspect... Um, people who we think might be involved Mm. know that the police are still looking. I I don't want anyone to feel comfortable and I don't want anyone who had something to do with this, I mean. I don't want that person and those people who are covering up for that person to ever feel too comfortable because this case, they're still coming for you. Because someone and or some people know and they're holding back the truth. So it's mm-hmm. the bottom line. We look forward to that documentary. It's less than two weeks' time. We'll talk more about that as well, Carolyn. Let me just talk about now women's safety firmly back in the spotlight this week with a special virtual summit forming the foundations for a new national plan around ending violence. Uh, the assault survivors Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins um, were vocal. They were sceptical of the talks. How optimistic are you that this might finally bring some meaningful change? Not even slightly optimistic. And it's the older does. You don't listen to what people say. You listen to what they do. And just very recently, 
Scott Morrison's government voted with One Nation to vote down amendments that would have made things better, that would have made harassment in the workplace against the law, that would have stopped victims ending up with huge um, bills, with huge um, yeah, bills at the end of it. And mostly they got rid of the centrepiece, which would have put the onus on workplaces to prevent sexual harassment happening. So this is what this government has done. So Scott Morrison can get up and say all the words he wants and they mean nothing. Carolyn? Look, I don't know whether it's necessarily the work of governments alone. I have been surprised. Um, well, I'm surprised that 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 we are all surprised that this is still an issue for Australian women because it absolutely is. We have seen uh, so many reports this week that have been, or this year, that have been quite shocking, I think, to, to generally in Australia. Um, but I think the, the problem always comes back to individual behaviour and cultural behaviour in workplaces. And I'm not sure, Dee, that I can, I can see the government doing much about that because the cases that we've seen where there's been real violence, for example, the death of, of the woman in Queensland who was burnt with her children in the car. Yeah. I mean, this is much more even to talk about these cases. I'm not sure all the legislation in the world could have protected her. Except this legislation came off the back of an incredibly rigorous report with hundreds of submissions about and real, people really drilling down into what could change things. And these were the recommendations from this. And for the government to side with One Nation against them, as if somehow they know more than these people who've studied this report and, and really put everything into it for a couple of years to try to change things, was, I thought, extraordinary. So you do, know, we what, can change things with legislation. What, so legislation is the key. Is that is that the step? Or it's is it is, is, part is, of it. Yeah, OK. It is part of it. It's carrot and stick. Sometimes yeah. people won't change unless you change the laws. And we know that with everything. You know, we, we'd love people just to do the right thing. We know that's not the case. Sometimes you need to change the laws to make them do the right thing. Change of gear here with the subject. You might have seen the ads for this already. More big names are putting their bodies to the test. New season of SAS Australia. Uh, it's on Monday night here on 7D. What do you reckon? Would you sign up for this? Would you? Funny, I watch this. <laughs> I have a look at these and I think, I could do this. You know, it's one of the things you look at, oh, I'd love to get that crap. I know full well I couldn't. I'd cry in the first hour and fall off a cliff or something stupid would happen to me. Um, do you, could you, could you, you're a runner, you keep very fit. Would you do this? No, could you survive? No, and see, I can, I can run and I can run and I can run. I can barely do two push-ups. Right, OK. Like, I would almost be tempted now just to get away from my family for a while. It would be nice. I'd almost do anything, yeah. but not that. No, no, not me. Carolina, you, you would be the champion of if there, was a, if there was a mental SAS, a mind SAS, you'd win that. How would you go on the physical version, do you think? You know, I don't reckon I'd be great at it, but I, mm. what impresses me about them is these people are not all young. Like some mm. of them, and some of the women too, uh, mothers of three who are well into their 40s, and yet they've got this real endurance. Can you imagine that even our parents' generation? Like the, the idea that you would be in your 40s and your 50s and out there in that kind of physical condition? Yeah. I mean, I think it's extraordinary. It's great for oldies. I, I, look, I love it because of the mental, uh, there's mental torture involved as well, but it seems to be a mind game. It's the mental challenge. I'm, they're all fit. I mean, some of them are extraordinarily fit, but uh, it's it's a mind game, isn't it, uh, I, I <laughs> Yeah, I, I, look, I'd be all right probably at the game playing and the mind thing, but yeah, the physicality of it... Um, it would. I'd injure myself. I think I'd end up just in an ambulance taken away in the first week. And, or I'd, do you know what? I'd fake an injury. That'd be me. <laughs> oh, no, you wouldn't. I don't think you would at all. Oh, my back. My back. <laughs> 
All right, Dee, Carolyn, thanks for your time again. Now, Gemma Acton's back with a look at the markets. Thanks, Michael. The battle between global economy optimists and pessimists continues to play out in global markets, with those seeing the glasses half empty getting the upper hand today. Japan was the only regional market to finish in the green. Wall Street is also gearing up for a dismal day, with all three major indices pointing to a lower open. Oil slipped overnight, but is pushing higher again now. That's thanks largely to Gulf of Mexico oil producers struggling to get supply up and running as quickly as hoped in the wake of Hurricane Ida. And the prevailing risk-off attitude has hit our local currency. It fell back under 74 US cents last night and continued to slide throughout today. Michael. Well, thank you for your company this evening. From the team here at 7 News, that is the latest. I'm Michael Lusher. Thanks for your company. Have a good night.